This morning I'm going to talk to you about the kisses that nobody wants. Did I get your attention? <laughs> Turn to Proverbs chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. And if you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you this morning and want to look at one, there's one right in front of you. And the passage is on page 514. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Yes, I read this to you. I'm actually going to be reading this from a slightly different translation simply because I memorized it from a different translation many years ago. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now, I'm sure I got your attention with those last two words, even if you've already forgotten the first 17. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Multiplying kisses. But let me share with you some awkward stories of first kisses. And I'm going to tell you, first of all, a little disclaimer, these are not my stories, okay? <laughs> let me repeat that. These are not my stories, even though I'm going to tell them in the first person. So the first one is a story of this uh, boy in kindergarten. His name is Oliver. And he says uh, that he, uh, this boy and Oliver were vying for the attention of a girl named Vanessa. And one day Vanessa had the two of them competing against each other all day at school. During recess, it was a race to see who was the fastest. During gym class, it was to see who could climb the rope the quickest. And said, by the end of the day, Oliver had beat me in every event. And yet at the end of the day, Vanessa walked over and kissed him. Now, this wasn't some little innocent peck on the cheek because the teacher came over and grabbed them both by the shoulder and said they were staying after school. And he said, our romance never recovered. <laughs> Here's another one. I was 17 and sitting at a piano with my crush. I had run out of Coldplay songs to, say, uh, to play, and I was attempting to dazzle him with a version of Moonlight Sonata. His face was suddenly on my face, which was still turned towards the piano keys. She said it was really awkward. The same thing happened a couple of years later with a different boy. She said, I probably should learn to play another song. <laughs> And then lastly, my first kiss was with a boy who told me I looked like Gloria Estefan. Now, if you don't know who that is, you either need to ask your parents or ask your grandchildren, depending on which side of this you're on. She said, I didn't want to kiss him, so I panicked and said the first thing that came into my head, that I had just vomited. He said he didn't mind, and he kissed me. Can we all just say together, ooh? Now again, I want to repeat to you, these are not my stories of first kisses. My first kiss was actually with Cindy, and she is the only woman I have ever kissed. And I have never regretted that. Even back in Bible times, though, when kissing was more of a cultural norm, it was something that you did as a way of greeting. Think of, uh, you know, like uh, in Europe or in Latin America where they do that air kiss on each side. Uh, that's kind of what it was more like. But there were still certain kinds of kisses that you didn't want. And the worst kisses were those of enemies and betrayers. And so how did God say that we should deal with people who would attempt to deceive us? 
I want to share with you a poem. This is not from the Bible. This is actually from the Reader's Digest a number of years ago. It says, O innocent victims of Cupid, remember this terse little verse. To let a fool kiss you is stupid, but to let a kiss fool you is worse. In those Bible times, kissing indicated that a person liked you, not that they were in love with you or that they liked you, liked you. But there were kisses, certain kisses, that you still would not have wanted. For example, there were the kisses of people that would want to take advantage of you. In the book of Genesis, we read about the time when Jacob, who later his name was turned to Israel, he ran away from home. Now, when you hear run away from home, you think of a little boy running away from home, right? This isn't the case. Jacob was a grown man, and the reason that he felt he needed to run away from home is that he had lied and deceived his father and had stolen his older brother's birthright, and he felt that his life was in danger. So he ran away from home, and he went to his uncle Laban's house, and his uncle Laban greets him with a kiss. You would think that that would be just affection between Uncle Laban and and nephew Jacob, But Laban saw something in Jacob. He saw somebody that he could take advantage of. And so he did for the next 14 years. In Proverbs, we're also told of the kisses of the adulteress. And if you're still in Proverbs, if you just go back uh, to uh, chapter 7... And we're going to start at verse 13. This tells about such a woman catching the attention of a young man. And it says, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, covered linens, and Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. She's not a very nice person, but she sure knows how to kiss. So the young man goes with her, and we see down in verses 25 through 27, it says, Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, and do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So we've seen the kisses of those who would like to take advantage of you, and now we've seen the the kisses of the adulteress, but then there are the kisses of people who just don't like you. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, we're told that there is a man who is leading a rebellion against King David, the king of Israel. And this rebellious leader had a general, and his name was Amasa. David's general was a man named Joab. So we've got these two generals on opposite sides of this battle, Amasa and Joab. And guess what? They're related to each other. And we're told that they meet in the field, which makes it sound kind of like a family reunion and a picnic in a field. That's not what this was. This was a battlefield. And in verse 9, it says, Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And then with his left hand, he draws his sword and kills Amasa. Now, of course, there is the most famous kiss of all, that which Judas Iscariot used to betray Christ. 
In Matthew 26, 48 through 50, it says, Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, and I think this was said with sarcasm, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Now our text this morning, the second verse, verse 6 of chapter 27 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. This kind of enemy doesn't just kiss you, he multiplies his kisses. Back then an enemy would have kissed you to deceive you into believing that he actually liked you, that he was your friend, like Joab, or that he wanted to help you, like Laban. Of course, he didn't, but he'd like you to think that. Remember in the poem I read at the beginning, to let a fool kiss you is stupid, but to let a kiss fool you is worse. But would you and I be fooled by somebody, an enemy that was kissing us? Not today, because we live in a different culture, right? To have an enemy kissing on you would not get the job done. So if that's true, and if this concept, this idea of deceitfulness is still true, then what would it be that would fool us today? Let me use an illustration. Think of a young man taking a girl that he wants to impress to the Crawford County Fair. And as they're walking along the midway, one of the barkers starts complimenting the young man in front of his girl, kind of challenging him, you know, to impress this girl. And so he appeals to the young man's pride and to his vanity. You know, come on up here. How hard is it to make, you know, three baskets shooting this basketball? Now, of course, we all know how hard that is, right? Because the, the basketball hoop is not quite regulation size, and the backboard is leaning forward a little bit, so basically nobody is going to be able to make this shot. And so he tries a couple of times, and he loses, and decides this isn't the game for him. He's not impressing the girl that he's with. But as he walks away, the barker turns to him, and he plays more on this young man's pride and vanity. Mostly, he's just shaming him into trying it more. And so before he knows it, the young man has spent a great deal of money and hasn't won a thing. Actually, hopefully, he's learned a lesson. My point is this. While kissing does not get the job done today, flattery and smooth talk will. Flattery works because it appeals to the image we have of ourselves. When someone appeals to our vanity, they're actually telling us what we already believe about ourselves and wish other people would notice. Let me read that to you again. Flattery works because it appeals to the image we have of ourselves. When someone appeals to our vanity, they're actually telling us what we already believe about ourselves and wish others would notice. The Bible warns us about such people. In Proverbs chapter 26, verses 24 through 26, it says, He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. But what about the previous verse, uh, 27 verse 5? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Uh, what does that mean? And honestly, why would anybody feel like being rebuked out in the open was a good thing? 
In these verses, we're seeing two different kinds of friends. They are represented by open rebuke and by hidden love. One is better than the other. And obviously, we should choose the good one and despise the bad one. But that's going to take discernment. So what is open rebuke? It's telling a person, a friend, their fault where they have stepped off the straight and narrow and personally doing it and directly doing it. It's open. You do it face to face, not behind their back. It's not on social media. It's not through a text. And it's certainly not by talking to somebody else about it. It's so much easier to, to assume, isn't it, that somebody else, else will take care of this? You know, you may see a friend or somebody at church and think, yeah, oh, I don't think they should be doing that. Uh, but Pastor Mike will take care of that, right? I mean, that's what he gets paid to do. And this isn't the only place that this principle is taught in the Bible. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and post it on social media so that everybody... Oh, that's not what it says, is it? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between him and you alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. James taught it in James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone is among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And Paul also taught this in the letter to the Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is what a true friend does. If you allow a friend to continue in sin, you really can't call them your friend. If your friend allows you to continue in sin, that same thing is still applies here. Rebuking a friend for sin is true love. And this was taught even back by Moses in Leviticus 19.7. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Now, maybe you're thinking of the verse in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not lest you be judged. Probably one of the most misused verses in the Bible. People say that when they're doing something wrong, but they don't want to be called out on it. Pastor, evangelist, and author Greg Laurie has written this. I think the non-believer's favorite verse is Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Non-believers love to quote that to Christians who dare to confront them. But we need to understand what judge means in this verse. He goes on, Jesus spoke these words in the Sermon on the Mount, and the word he used for judge means condemn. So Jesus was saying, condemn not that you be not condemned. Now what about the latter part of Proverbs 27.5? What is hidden love? Honestly, it's saying that you're somebody's friend and not having the courage or the commitment to correct their faults. Put the opposite way, it's saying that you are someone's friend, but not allowing them to point out where your life doesn't measure up to God's standards. It's hidden love because there's no character to that love. 
the writer of this proverb is actually using the word love in a sarcastic way because it's superficial. It's not caring enough about that person to say or do the difficult thing. Do you receive open rebuke of this proverb without bristling? Let me just be honest with you. This was one of the most difficult lessons I had to learn for many, many years of my life. Even from the time I was a child up until I was much older than I would care to admit, I had a hard time accepting even constructive criticism. It's something that I had to learn or I was never going to grow. David said he would consider reproof by a righteous man a true act of kindness. And in Psalm 141, verse 5, he says, Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. As a sinner, we need such friends who will confront us rather than flatter us. We need to cherish that kind of friendship. Jesus faithfully rebuked his own dear friends, and they spent the rest of their lives profiting from that loving and faithful investment that he made in them. With Peter, remember when he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. And yet, what is, what is it that we remember about Peter? What a great and bold witness he was, a pillar of the early church. With James and John, it says, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, oh, let's be kind and compassionate to them. That's not what it says, is it? They asked Jesus, can we call down fire on these people and destroy them? Kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But he turned and he rebuked them. James, again, was one of the early leaders of the church. What about John? I mean, this guy that was saying, let's call down fire and destroy all these people. John is known as the disciple of love because Jesus cared enough about him to correct him. True love wounds when it cannot be avoided, but kisses often lie. No matter what you think, true friends wound each other, they correct, they rebuke, and they warn each other for their own mutual benefit. But we also need to stay faithful to this text. This is not talking about Christians rebuking individuals who do not follow Christ because they are acting unchristlike. I mean, what would you expect, right? Why would you expect somebody who claims to not follow God to follow God's principles? Let me give you an illustration of this. You may recall a comment that comedian Kathy Griffin made back in 2007. It was at the Emmys, and she was receiving an award for Best Reality Program for My Life on the D-List. And she holds up this award, and she says, A lot of people come up here and thank Jesus for their award. I want you to know that no one had less to do this with this award than Jesus. I want you to know um, that no one had less to do this than Jesus. And then she cursed Jesus and said, This award is my God now. 
Some people were really angry about that. And they said some very unflattering things about Miss Griffin. She had gone out of her way to insult Jesus. Now, I don't know anything about Kathy Griffin today, but based on what I've learned from this example right here in time, I would say at that point in time, based on what she said and how she acted, she was not a Christ follower. She was not on her way to heaven. She was lost. I heard someone say this recently. People who aren't Christians are not our enemies. They are the victim of our enemy. And the thing is this, Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against Kathy Griffin. It's not against this movie star or that pagan singer or that atheist or this politician. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who is our enemy? It's not these people who may say things that are offensive to us. Our enemy is Satan. He's the one that we're doing battle against. Those of flesh and blood, humans, people, They are merely those that he has taken captive to do his will. We have to realize that God so loved the world. He even loved our enemies. And don't forget that Christ loved us while we were still his enemies. He loved them and us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, back to those who are followers of Christ. If you truly love another person, all your actions towards them will be governed by the goal of helping them to please God and prepare for the day of judgment. Therefore, you will correct them. You'll warn them. You'll rebuke them when it's necessary. You will also be open to correction and warning and rebuke when it's necessary in your own life. You will not coddle or compromise or overlook actions that hurt their relationship with God. And you will not want to be coddled or compromised or have hurtful actions overlooked that would hurt your relationship with God. Godly love does not overlook a sin. It does not condone wrongdoing in people who claim to be followers of Christ. It's a lie to believe that friendship and love means that we want to keep everything comfortable and happy and peaceful at all costs. Sin deceives us. Actually, I've heard many times, sin makes us stupid. It darkens our understanding and it makes us fools. So much so that we may be walking in sin and convinced that we are actually obeying God. You need an example? Think of the Pharisees. Who were the most godly, righteous, walking people on earth who had memorized vast portions of the Old Testament? And yet, who did Jesus spend most of his time saying, this is wrong? It was the Pharisees. And that's why we desperately need friends. We need friends who will lovingly show us our sin, who will show us our blind spots, because we all have them, right? We need friends to speak with loving honesty, telling us the truth about ourselves even when we don't want to hear it. 
This is a vital function of community that few people want. We'd much rather have friends who will always tell us what we want to hear, who will show us the false grace of excusing our sin and give us the false hope that we can grow closer to God without ever repenting. But because sin is a poison to our soul and is a thief of our joy in God, we can't afford to forsake that kind of friendship. But our truest friends will also encourage us to obey God, not just simply call us out on it when we disobey. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 10.24. It says, let us encourage one another to love and good deeds. And Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. While it's true that we need help, uh, friends who will help us see any disobedience, we also need friends who will spur us on to obedience. Often obedience to God takes more courage than we can muster on our own. And without the faithful cheerleading of our Christian friends, we easily shrink into apathy, not wanting to willfully disobey, but too afraid to step out in faith. And the encouragement we are told to give isn't flattery. It isn't superficial inspiration. Encouragement is giving courage, giving strength to others for the intimidating task before them. We cast a bigger vision for why their obedience matters for the kingdom of God. And we affirm that their obedience glorifies God and counts in eternity. Whatever form it takes, encourage motivates others to continue running the specific race that God has marked out for them. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have chosen to follow him, what is this passage saying to you today? I see three things. One, you need to be open to somebody showing you where your life is falling short of God's principles. Two, you need to care enough about your friends that you don't allow them to live in a way that dishonors God. And three, we need to encourage. We need to catch people living a godly life and encourage them by telling them so. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe this is the day that you need to do that. Maybe you've always thought that you're a Christian, but let me define for you who can call themselves a Christian. A Christian is someone who first and foremost has been forgiven of their sin and been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ. This happens when a person repents of their sins and puts their faith in the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because heaven is not a place for good people, Heaven is a place for forgiven people. We tend to think that because heaven is such a big deal and our sin is so overwhelming and God's holiness is so far above us that salvation must be difficult to obtain. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, God tells us how simple he's made it. He says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead brings salvation. For it is with our heart that we believe and are justified, and it is with our mouth that we confess and are saved. Father, we thank you this morning for these words that you have brought before us. I pray for my friends who are following you, that they would be courageous enough to speak truth into other believers' lives in a kind, gentle, loving, and personal way. But sometimes, God, the more difficult thing is to hear those words. I pray that you would make me the kind of person and and everyone here the kind of people that are willing to hear constructive criticism from a loving friend. And Father, for those who have not followed you yet, I pray that this would be the day that they would consider that. Father, I thank you for this church that boldly proclaims salvation, both here and around the world. And as we give our offerings this morning, God, we ask that you would use them and that you would increase them many times over so that the gospel can be preached in all nations and here in Erie. In Jesus' name. Amen.